Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hummus Tailgate Party. I am your host, Thomas Jackson. I hope everybody has had a nice summer and off-season. Um, this is going to be a recap of everything that has happened since the last time we chatted about college football in January. There has been a whole lot going on, uh, so we've got a lot to get to here just between NIL and the transfer portal and all the other drama going on this off-season. First, I just want to get through some quick housekeeping about the pod. Before we dive into the recap, uh, most everybody listening to this probably knows to some extent by now my life got flipped on its head this summer, and I, for a while, did not think I was going to continue the podcast, but it's been a really fun, creative outlet for me talking about this sport that I love with people that I love, Um, so even though people tried to conspire to sabotage my life, I've decided I'm going to keep on keeping on with this fun project that I started last season. And since I came to that realization a few days ago, I've been really, really looking forward to the college football season. With that being said, I did a lot of prep earlier this summer in June, uh, just kind of recapping everything that had happened in the off season. I was planning on releasing this episode many, many weeks ago, going a little bit further in depth about all of these things, but uh, life happens and things got in the way and I'm just going to have to go with what I had already planned in June. So everything that's happened 4th of July-ish on, I'm just going to touch on super quickly um, and then, but we'll cover most of the big topics in pretty good detail here in the next probably, well, I guess a couple weeks, I'm going to release a season preview looking at all the big contenders, doing a quick little, uh, not deep dive, shallow dive on each Power 5 conference and the notable independent teams. I really wanted to do a deep dive into every Power 5 conference, but I haven't even begun my prep work for studying up on teams this season. So I'm just going to have to make do with the time that I have. We are only about two and a half weeks away from the season starting less than, well, I guess like one and a half weeks from week zero. Um, I'll talk about that more at the end, but I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, we're going to have a fun season. I'm going to have to probably tone some things back a little bit um, that I was doing last season just for time purposes. This does take a lot of time and energy uh, to get everything ready to go for each weekly episode, so there's going to be a few slight changes to the pod but I'm going to try to keep the same weekly schedule, probably releasing most episodes on Wednesday and kind of stick with the little bit of recap, a little bit of preview format that I had last season. One new thing that I'll go ahead and put out there that I'm excited for this year is the um, Pick'em group. We're going to do an ESPN spread group um, where you pick a handful of games that ESPN selects every single week. Um, pick the, sp- the point spread, whoever you think will cover and just like always, it's free entry. There will be a prize to the winner at the end of the season. So I will tweet and put on Instagram the details for that group. So please join and play with everybody. Should be good fun. This episode goes out to my good old friend, Kayshawn Moore, from Hampton Cove Middle School and Huntsville High. Um, back in February, he sent me a list of questions and topics that he wanted me to touch on. Thankfully, all those questions and topics are mostly made for a perfect uh, recap for this off season. So most of these are things that he sent me and wanted to hear about. So thanks to Kayshawn for sending that in. And then at the end of the pod, I'll touch on 
some of the stuff that's happened in the last month and a half ish, um, kind of briefly just to get everybody caught up. This was a really good refresher for me because there's been so much that has happened this off season. Um, I could do like a whole series of podcasts on this, but again, for time purposes, we'll try to get it all done here in an hour or so, hopefully. Um, so I hope everybody enjoys getting excited for the season and we'll kick off here in a second. So the first topic is the NIL. It's been all the rage, um, or most of the rage this off season. I was doing a lot of reading on this back in June to try to kind of wrap my head around the full scope of everything. And it got to the point where it was like, the more I read, the more complicated it was getting. Uh, it's really like the Wild West right now. The NCAA really dropped the ball. And instead of setting up some structured system for this, they just tried to avoid it for as long as possible. And now it's like, no one really knows what's going on. Everyone's doing all these different things. Uh, the big picture is people really hate how heavy top heavy college football is um and this nil is going to give schools that are you know quote unquote lesser than um on the field a chance to make up for it more off the field and eventually make them make the top of the sport more competitive so you're not getting the same five or six teams in the four team playoff every single year um you know think about sleeping giants that are historically great programs, but haven't been so good recently, like Tennessee, Miami, Nebraska. These schools have giant, giant support bases and people that are still very passionate about the programs. And the NIL will kind of give them a bit of a leg up um, on you know other schools that might have passed them by, but aren't as traditionally powerful and as supported. There's also schools that are smaller and might not have the historic football clout that a Tennessee or Nebraska might, but they still have really big pocketed alumni bases like TCU, SMU, Stanford, who's, you know, might have a few really rich donors that can set up funds and collectives for these athletes and make their school look a little more appealing with those big price tags that they're putting on, uh, you know, their entire roster. Um, you know, than they might have been beforehand to recruits. So the big thing, or one of the big things, uh, schools are setting up these collectives to pay out players, and this way they can pay everyone on their scholarship, or everyone on their roster, even the ones that are not on scholarship. Um, because last year we mostly just saw individual players getting big deals with, you know, whatever car company or even local little family businesses in town might recruit some local players to sponsor their products or whatever. For the collectives, um, most big schools have established this by now. It seems like $10 million per year is kind of a common number so far. Who knows how that might change going forward. Ryan Day has been pretty public about this, the Ohio State head coach, and he said it's going to take them about $13 million a year to keep their roster intact and keep players from possibly going elsewhere where the immediate payday might be a little bit more attractive. He made a great analogy about the NIL with trying to keep up with it and not get left behind, but not trying to go overboard at the same time. He said it's kind of like the speed limit. If you go too slow then under the speed limit, then you're going to get passed. So if you're not paying players enough, you know, other schools are going to take advantage of that and steal some guys away from you probably. 
But if you go too fast, you're going to get pulled over. And, you know, what these schools can't do is say, oh, well, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars every player on the roster every year. And then maybe have a couple bad seasons and people pull out of that, uh, you know, commitment to their financial contribution to the collective. And then you're just left basically lying to these kids. It's these sound like really big numbers, but if you look up the average salary of like a decent NFL player, it doesn't seem so big uh, when you compare it to that. And it's just the way that things are going to be going now. So um, I won't go for too long on this because there's just so much like it could be a whole podcast in itself, but it's just the big new thing to keep an eye on. Um, All these players, you know, happy they're happy they're getting paid like they deserve to. And, you know, if we're all being honest, all the big programs, you know, even big players at smaller schools were getting payments and, you know, treats under the table. Um, But now it's just all above the table. And it's just it's just crazy because the NCAA refused to address this problem for so long. And now there's no system to make it work. It'll work itself out. It'll settle down in a few years and kind of balance out. But right now it's like the wild west and we just haven't (laughs) gotten to the stabilization point quite yet. So it'll be really interesting to keep an eye on that as the season goes on. And, you know, especially in off seasons to come in the future. The next topic that Kayshawn asked about was the whole Jimbo Fisher deal, um, which is kind of settled down now, um, but I'm sure most of you remember, especially the Bama and A&M and SEC fans, that back in May, him and Saban got into a quite heated uh, little public feud going back and forth at each other um, in press conferences or public settings. Um Kayshawn actually asked me about this before this feud even happened, but now what he was asking about, just a couple little comments that Jimbo made in February are kind of old news and small potatoes compared to his public thing with Saban. Um, they've both they've both chilled. I'm sure Commissioner Greg Sankey, who's in charge of the SEC, had a pretty stern talk with both of them in private, telling them to calm down because now SEC media days a couple weeks ago they were both just kind of playing it down, but there's no doubt that the Texas A&M versus Bama game in Tuscaloosa this this October will still be uh, quite testy. This whole feud started when Saban was at an event in Birmingham, and someone asked him about the NIL, Saban, which this wasn't the first time he said this, but he was raising questions about how sustainable it is. I believe he was kind of getting at how how unstructured it is right now, like I was just saying. Um, The quote that blew up was he said that Alabama finished number two in recruiting to Texas A&M, who finished number one, and he said Texas A&M bought their whole class and we didn't buy any. Um, What we assume was that, or at the time, was that he was kind of hinting at they illegally induced their players to go play there which technically you're not allowed to do, but that, I mean, everybody has been doing it, you know, Alabama included, I'm sure. And I don't think Saban was trying to, like, really take a shot at Texas A&M, even though it definitely came off that way. Um, Because, I mean, you can look at his history. He's really never done anything like that. But he definitely could have worded things in a better, uh, better manner. So then the next morning, Jimbo called a press conference and was just absolutely raging mad. 
he called out Saban and called him despicable and a narcissist and told the media to go look at the skeletons in his closet. Um, Jimbo was an assistant under Saban at LSU back in the early 2000s. So whatever he's insinuating that Saban might have done, he might be insinuating that he was there helping him. I'm not really sure what that comment was all about. Um, you know, I mean, Jimbo, everyone knows, isn't the most squeaky clean coach in college football, especially from all the Florida State stuff. Uh, he said, Jimbo said, in quotes, I'm not a cheater, even though he literally got popped with NCAA sanctions within the two months, within two months of being hired at Texas A&M. So it was just a big blown up situation where Saban definitely did not say what he was trying to say very well. And this is really quite rare of him because he's so calculated and normally doesn't slip up like that. Um, and then Jimbo was just absolutely steaming mad. But since then, they've both kind of, you know, more or less at least acted like they've made up and they're kind of blowing the situation off a little bit. So it's all blown over, um, at least for now. It'll it'll definitely spark back up when we get to that Bama A&M game in October. Um, but, you know, it's just Saban was getting at just how unstructured everything is. And everyone knows that he's like the most structured person on the planet. And he called out, singled out Texas A&M and Jimbo, which he shouldn't have done. Jimbo came back and got super personal with it, which he shouldn't have done. And both parties really could have just taken a step back and prevented this from ever happening. Or, you know, at least, at least not, got not have gotten as personal with it as they did. So it's kind of nice that all that drama is at least put in the closet for now. Um, but yeah, it'll be an interesting matchup here in a couple months for sure. The next topic case Sean asked about was the targeting rule. Um, there's been a couple new rule changes um, from the NCAA this year that will be pretty relevant. Um, so targeting the rule right now is that if a player gets flagged for targeting, the officials always review it to make sure it was indeed targeting because then if the player is found guilty, he has to miss two halves of football. So if he gets the targeting in the first half of a game, he has to sit out for the remainder of that game. If he gets a targeting in the second half of the game, he misses the second half of the current game and then the first half of the next game. Um, the new rule change is that if a player is called for targeting in the second half of a game, the school can appeal the targeting call so the player wouldn't have to miss the first half of the next week's game. I don't know anyone that really loves this rule. While, yes, there needs to be a targeting rule in place, I don't think the current system... Um, forcing a player to miss basically an entire game's worth of football, whether it be that day or a half and half situation between two weeks. It's just, it's the punishment doesn't always fit the crime. If it is super egregious, then yes, I think that is a fair penalty. But um, what I've heard and thought about is the idea of like a targeting one and a targeting two, um, rule change which is just hypothetical but I think it would be nice if we got there eventually so if a, a targeting one could be just an incidental uh, football situation where yes there was technically targeting but it was pretty clear it was just 
you know, sometimes it just happens and it's no one is trying to be dangerous or careless. It's just, it's a violent game. And sometimes in a bang, bang play, you know, your heads will collide. Uh, it's just the reality of the thing, in which case that would be nice to have maybe a 15 yard penalty first down to the offense. And that be the end of it. Let the players stay in the game. And then if there's just obvious, like Vontez perfect level, stupid, dangerous targeting, then kick them out for the rest of the game or the, you know, two halves, whatever. So I don't know this, this would be nice to see in the future. I think the new rule change is a step in the right direction. Even though the refs do review every single targeting call, sometimes it's still just iffy. So that way, at least the player wouldn't have to sit out the first half of the next week's game as well. So that's something that I would like to see changed in the future, but it's not going to be happening this season with the targeting one and two. Another rule change this year uh, is in regard to faking injuries, which I'm really glad to see this being addressed. It's a tricky subject um, because, you know, if someone is actually hurt, you don't want the opposing team to be freaking out and acting like it's some fabrication if the player really is down with a serious injury. Um, But a lot of times what you'll see happen uh, in in college football games is if there is a team say you know in the lead in the second half and their opponent is starting to make a comeback and put the pressure on them the team in the lead in order to save themselves some timeouts maybe kill the momentum of a drive might have some players faking injuries to kill the momentum And this has happened. I mean, you know, it's hard to prove, but when it starts to happen time after time after time in a single quarter, you know, it it becomes suspicious. And I think everyone has probably experienced a situation where their team's been on the wrong side of it and it sucks. Um, So the new rule is that schools and conferences will be allowed to report scenarios where an opposing team may have been awarded an injury timeout suspiciously. So if they have three guys go down in the span of one drive, if a player goes down and they have to call an injury timeout to get them off the field, the player has to sit out for one play and then he can return in the game. So teams that are have the pressure put on them might tell their you know starting linebacker hey just go down for one play that way we can like stop the clock we can take a breather kill the other team's drive for a couple minutes and then you only have to sit out one play and we can get you back in there so when you see guys doing this and then going acting like they broke their leg or something and then run off the field and come back in one play later it's obviously pretty suspicious um you know the the conference or school in this rule change um, would be able to issue discipline if the national coordinator or officiating deems it necessary. So I think this will prevent some teams from just blatantly faking injuries in the midst of a comeback to help their own situation and just add a little bit more integrity uh, to the game. So I'm a fan of that. Sean was asking about attendance issues um, in college football. And this is really a broader issue that goes across all sports. Um, Fewer people, especially young people, are buying season tickets because the prices are just getting more and more expensive, which, yes, has 
always happened over, you know, the slow progression of time. But now especially stadiums are getting more luxurious and inaccessible to your just normal average fan. Like Alabama is, you know, doing all these major renovations to Bryant-Denny Stadium, which is, yes, an old stadium, but it has been kept up with pretty dang well. Um, but they just added all of these or adding all of these luxury boxes and adding these cool bells and whistles to the stadium. And while, yes, it is really pretty to look at and cool on the surface if you're watching it on TV or just looking at pictures of the stadium, but it drives the ticket prices uh, way up. And if you're a season ticket holder, at some of the big schools where there's high demand for tickets still, then on top of having to buy the $100 plus tickets every single game for all of your seats, you also have to pay like essentially membership dues to just have the opportunity to keep buying your season tickets every year. So if stadiums are adding these millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of renovations and upgrades, those premiums are just going to keep going up and up and up. And you're going to, you're going to drive out your normal fans that have been going to games for decades. Uh, TV broadcasts are getting bigger, better, more high definition, uh, more, you know, just viewer friendly. And of course, you know, everyone now, instead of having a little, crappy black and white box television like a lot of people had back in the day or like everyone had back in the day you know we can all watch the game at home and it's a great broadcast and product to consume just on your sofa or just go to a sports bar where they have 20 TVs and you can watch your game and everything else going around going on around the country TVs are really cheap you can set up like I have a spare TV that I set up in football season that is you know just for I'll have Bam on the big TV, then whatever other game interests me, and I can always throw a third game on my laptop, so I don't even have to go to a bar to see two or three games at the same time if I just want to do that from the comfort of my own home. Um, You know, COVID caused people to do stuff, like I bought my spare TV for $50 on Facebook Marketplace during COVID because we couldn't even go to a bar then, so I just wanted to have another screen to watch another game on. And now everyone, you know, or, I mean, a lot of people kind of upgraded their home viewing situation during COVID because you had no other option for a while there for a season or two. Um, so everyone's just more comfortable at home. And with the crowd thing, you know, now that society is back open and running, it's not as big of a concern as it was last year, obviously in 2020. But you have a lot of people that are just, you know, cool with watching it at home, even more so than than pre-COVID. There's also tech companies taking over sports, like Amazon is going to be, they have Thursday night football for the NFL starting this year. They got Al Michaels and Kirk Street, two of the top broadcasters in all of sports. ESPN has alternate broadcasts, like the Manning cast and everything, and it turns maybe a boring game into a more entertaining product. So it kind of replicates the you know, popular streaming model that you see in like gaming and now increasingly in sports. So with the quality of the broadcast increasing, everyone's home setup being comfortable, TV, nice TVs are pretty cheap. Um, You just, and, and the increase of ticket prices, it just, it creates a situation where, 
you know, the big schools and the big programs are still going to continue to sell out all of their tickets for every game. But for the more just average college football program, it's going to be harder and harder to convince people to spend the time and energy and especially money to go, you know, sign up for season tickets year after year. So it's going to be, you know, interesting to see how this continues to progress. It's not just college football, like I was saying. This is really kind of a bigger, bigger thing in all of sports, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Okay, Sean was asking about the trouble in Auburn. (sighs) I won't go too deep into this. Um, We'll touch on this, I'm sure, at some point later in the season with Dylan Clark or one of our other Auburn experts that I have on a free retainer for the pod. But um, if you remember back in, I believe it was February, there was all this deal about Harson and him having an affair with this Auburn employee. Um, the short answer to all of this is Auburn staged an unsuccessful coup to fire their head coach with cause so they wouldn't have to pay him the buyout at the expense of the reputation of their coach, a young girl, and his family. Um, I guess it was the boosters, maybe some of the administration that weren't happy with the hiring in the first place. Auburn only won six games last year, so no one was very thrilled about that. The recruiting hasn't been good from Harson, but, you know, it's hard to have good recruiting, especially your first year when you're getting hired in the middle of the recruiting offseason, or the offseason, which is the recruiting season, rather. There's been, you know, instances... Auburn is kind of infamous for getting in their own way and shooting themselves in the foot in situations like this. There was kind of a similar situation where uh, Malzahn was trying to get ousted because some people wanted his defensive coordinator, Kevin Steele at the time, to get the Auburn head coaching job. That also was unsuccessful uh, for that little coup to work. Um, Right now, they, or at least a few weeks ago, Auburn had the eighth best class in the SEC, and their highest recruit was number 41 nationally. So that's really just not going to cut it. I mean, say what you want about Malzahn, but he was always bringing in top 10, 12, 15 classes. And with Auburn pretty much every single year having one of, if not the hardest schedules in the country, um, especially now having Georgia as good as they are every single year, and that being their permanent crossover game in the East you're going to have to recruit well to be able to keep up. Um, You know, Harson was kind of a strange hire because of the cultural differences. He had never had any experience with the SEC. Auburn had a really hard end to their season. Going into November, they were looking like they could, you know, maybe go on a hot streak and contend for the SEC West even. Um, But they hit a huge skid in November and ended on a pretty bad note. Lots of assistant coaches left. Uh, the OC from the Seahawks was hired it, like right after the season, and he only lasted like a month at Auburn before he left. Derek Mason, the defensive coordinator, left for the same title and less money at Oklahoma State, which was, you know, pretty strange. Um, Auburn just... It's not just them. This is classic. Every big program goes through this. Alabama certainly went through this for a long time before Saban when Bama had some really bad years. But it's hard to have a successful program if you have really horrible school alignment with the boosters and the powers that be in the administration and the coaching staff. The players kind of split on him, divided the locker room because there were still a lot of Gus Malzahn guys 
They had a couple people like Lee Hunter, a four-star D lineman, transferred to US or UCF where Malzahn got hired after he was fired by Auburn. And uh, like he like went on social media and he said that the coaching uh, coaching staff treated them like dogs and they weren't good enough. So that was a pretty bad look at the time. Harson came back and denied everything about the affair and stood up for himself and basically said, I'm not leaving. If you're going to fire me, then you're going to have to prove I did something wrong or else I'll take my 20 million dollars or whatever the price tag was. Um, oh, 23 million. That was the price tag. And I think Auburn expected him to accept a negotiated buyout, but he stood his ground and uh, they they basically backed off. Um, I think he won a lot of people over that were maybe on the fence about him, um, especially like fans and the players that were still still on the team after all of this, after seeing what him and his family went through. Um, now the university powers there probably still want him gone, but they look like a bunch of absolute clowns that will surely affect the next hire, whether that's in a year or two years or four years or whatever, if they still try to dump him quickly. Um, they already looked pretty bad after the power struggles with Malzahn, and that's why they had to hire Harson in the first place, because people like Brent Venables and Billy Napier really didn't want any part of that, and you can't blame them for that, because they're just continuously shooting themselves in the foot. I'm not a huge Auburn fan, or <laughs> not a huge Auburn fan, shocking, breaking news, um, but not a huge Harson fan before all of this. Uh, I don't know. It was just, it always just seemed like a kind of weird fit, but after this, I can't help, but, to almost want to pull for the guy after all that he went through. I don't want him to do well for my own selfish reasons, but I mean, it's kind of hard not to root for the guy and want him to find a little bit of success to stick it to the people who tried to completely burn down his reputation and his family's reputation at that. So We'll see if he gets off to a slow start. You know, Auburn has a really tough schedule. They play Penn State week three at home. Um, but I don't know. It's just going to be a weird situation down there until all of this settles down. And um, he's going to need to recruit better. There's no doubt about that. But if he can, I mean, even a six or seven win season would be a pretty impressive feat with their schedule and roster and everything right now. But uh, yeah, strange situation there, but we'll, we'll go more into that probably later this year when we kind of see how their season starts off and get an Auburn fan on here to give their thoughts about it. That's it from Sean for now. A couple of his questions I'm going to hit on in the next episode when I'm previewing the season to come. Um, a couple other things I want to just hit on super quickly was do a little recap for everybody about the big moves and the transfer portal and a quick reminder of all the coaching changes and just who landed where. Cause there's been, you know, there were a lot of big coaching, big name moves over this off season. Um, some of them from really big programs to other really big programs, which you don't normally see, but the freedom of the transfer portal really made things crazy. I was looking at a rivals list that gave like the top 200 rated players that transferred and where they were and where they wound up. And I was going to do a lot on that, but it was clear that that would require a whole episode by itself. So I'm just going to hit on the quarterbacks and then we'll get into the coaches afterwards. 
So the big names are Caleb Williams from Oklahoma, followed his coach Lincoln Riley to USC. Quinn Ewers from Ohio State, who was a five-star quarterback, huge commit for the Buckeyes last year. He never played at all this past season, or at least not any meaningful minutes because of C.J. Stroud and how how good he was starting for the Buckeyes. But he left Ohio State and went to Texas, um, which has kind of made a splash now that Arch Manning is committed there. Uh, Jackson Dart, who was a really highly rated quarterback at USC, transferred to Ole Miss. Spencer Rattler, who was the preseason favorite to win the Heisman last year, and like people thought he was going to be the number one overall draft pick, got benched in the middle of the season for Caleb Williams at Oklahoma, and now he is at South Carolina. Dylan Gabriel transferred from Central Florida to Oklahoma to fill in their little power void after Williams and Rattler left. Max Johnson, who's been at LSU for a while, transferred from there to Texas A&M because Zach Calzada transferred from Texas A&M to Auburn because Bo Nix transferred from Auburn to Oregon. And lastly, Georgia's quarterback that transferred from USC initially to the Dogs left for West Virginia after he had been dealing with injuries and then was never able to win the starting job back from Stetson Bennett. So the coaching carousel, I broke it up by conference alphabetically. Uh, In the ACC, Mario Cristobal left Oregon for his alumni of Miami. Tony Elliott, who was the offensive coordinator at Clemson, got the big uh, the Virginia coaching job. In the Big Ten, there were no big um, coaching changes. The Big 12, Brent Venables, who was the mastermind behind all the great Clemson defenses during their run over the past decade, left Clemson for Oklahoma. Uh, Sonny Dykes left SMU for TCU after Gary Patterson stepped down. In the Pac-12, Lincoln Riley, of course, went from Oklahoma to USC, and Dan Lanning, uh, Georgia's defensive coordinator, went from Athens to Oregon. In the SEC, Florida hired uh, Billy Napier, who they got from Louisiana Lafayette. I think he'll do a really good job there. Uh, LSU got Brian Kelly from Notre Dame, and Notre Dame promoted within their defensive coordinator, uh, Marcus Freeman, is now the head coach for the Irish. To cap it off, just a couple other quick things um, that have happened in the past few weeks. USC and UCLA announced that they are leaving the Pac-12 for the Big Ten. (laughs) It's really weird. I'm going to miss the regionality of college football that we all grew up with. That's one of the things that I I think makes college football really special. Um, And it's going to be really weird seeing... USC playing at Illinois for the noon, you know, 11 a.m. early morning kickoff game. It's going to be really strange, and the travel for them is going to be brutal. It's like practically like what Hawaii has to do every week now. But it's just, it's going to be conference musical chairs. Uh, Of course, Texas and Oklahoma announced a while back that they were joining the SEC, and everyone's just trying to kind of cover their own ass all the big programs, making sure that you're not the one standing up after all these mega conferences have filled up their spots. Um, You know, everyone, 
generally opposes big changes to the game like this when they happen. Um, like the playoff was, I mean, now that was eight years ago when it got implemented, but everyone gets used to it and you kind of, you know, you don't forget about how it used to be, but it just becomes the new norm. And, you know, even though it's going to be really weird seeing USC and UCLA in like the Midwest slash kind of Northeastern conference, you know, there's going to be a whole generation of kids that just grow up with that. And it feels like it's just been changing so fast. The last couple of years, I wish it would just slow down for a little bit, but you know, I mean, when USC is playing at Penn state on prime time in late October here in a few years, you know, everyone's going to be fired up about that. So even though I will miss the PAC 12 forever and ever, I don't know what's going to come of it, but you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of sad to see the regionality of college football that we all grew up with and loved, um, disappearing a little bit, but it's just, it's just going to be a very different game here in a few years, as far as the conference alignments go. Because of these big changes in the SEC and the Big Ten and all the other conferences that, that impacted, um, TV deals have been completely restructured and it's going to look a lot different here in a couple years. SEC has always had the 2.30 Central primetime CBS game for the best SEC game of the week for as long as I've been alive. And now the SEC will be moving to ESPN uh, full-time, and NBC, Fox, and CBS are going to be basically splitting up the uh, the Big Ten. This is going to leave the rest of the conferences fighting for scraps for the noon Eastern ESPN2 kickoff game. Um, you know, again, it's going to be weird. That's not the biggest change that will affect the sport or anything, but everyone's really chasing that TV check and these deals that are getting done are just absolutely massive. And to conclude, just a couple of dates going forward. Um, we're only 13 days away from week zero when I'm recording this. Um, that's of course like the weird Saturday, the weekend before Labor Day, which is always the traditional college football kickoff weekend um, where there's now a few pretty crappy games but games nonetheless to get everybody warmed up and ready to go for the big holiday weekend when everybody is playing Northwestern and Nebraska play in the morning a couple other games in the afternoon and then Vandy plays at Hawaii on the island at nighttime so not uh the biggest matchups by any means but it'll be nice to have some football on and definitely uh cheers to all my fellow sicko enjoyers because that'll be a pretty crappy day of football that everyone's going to really enjoy um, and then afterwards some bigger games get started on thursday september 1st and then saturday september 3rd is the big kickoff weekend um so until then, I will release a season preview here in probably a week and a half, right before week zero, hopefully. Might end up coming out the week uh, before Labor Day, and we'll get into a little uh, week one preview after that. So thanks for everybody to, uh, thanks for everyone for listening. I'm excited to be back. It's going to be a really fun season. Keep your eye out for the episodes and that uh, Pick'em group that is free to join. So please play along with me there. Should be a lot of fun. And uh, we'll see you here in a couple weeks.